Right, okay, so this is episode five of Music and More, and uh, we're excited today, actually, to have his first guest on, which is quite nice. I mean, obviously, Pete's on as usual. How are you doing, Pete? You all right? Doing well. Hey, you asked me how I am, so we're off to I know, a I remembered start. this. I remembered this time. I didn't, you know, and you were so upset last time, I had to get it in there. <laughs> but yeah, so we've got Pete, uh, and we've also got Tim Viggan, who um, is our manager, or sort of was our manager, is our manager, however you want to look at it. But essentially, he's the guy that um, discovered us all those years ago, and uh, we're really excited to have him on. I think he's a little bit nervous. I don't know why, because he's a natural bloody chatterbox. So, he's, you know, he's, he's got a lot to say. Um, but yeah, I just thought it would be interesting and I'm interested as well, sort of having started to relive all these things. I and also Pete thought it'd be interesting to to sort of hear things, um, how Tim feels about everything and felt about everything and all those sorts of things. So yeah, uh, thank you very much for coming on, Tim. And um, yeah, I think, I don't know if, if Pete, if you want to sort of just start things off and lead some questions, because I think, you you know, as I say, I'm interested in the, the fans sort of natural interest in this situation. So I don't know if you want to kick things off. Sure thing. Hey, Tim, first off, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So, uh, yeah, we owe you a debt of gratitude, man. I, I got to tell you, <laughs> being a big music fan, I, I've always uh, wondered in my own mind, how, how do bands get discovered and what's the process? And so I, I and I try to imagine what it must have been like to see a band that I love for the first time that has not yet been discovered and been like, yeah, I'm going to take a chance on these guys. Uh, and so with that, I'm really curious. Maybe we can go back to when you when you actually first discovered the music and, and give us a little bit of insight into uh, what that process was like. Well, it, it's interesting. I, I I came from a publicity background. I was uh, I was the publicist for the the Verve when they did Urban Hymns. And that was my first big project, and uh, that led to you know doing publicity for a lot of sort of big alternative bands. So that's where I got my sort of early introduction into the sort of London music business. And uh, I had a, a mentor, a guy called Rob Partridge, who was a legendary publicist. He did Bob Marley, Tom Waits, and um, Bought you two into Island Records. You know he was he, he was an incredible man to learn from. So I was incredibly lucky. You know that, that I had um, someone took a chance on me. Hmm. So it, you, you know I didn't go to a posh school and didn't know anybody in London really. And this guy took a, a shout with me and he gave me an opportunity. When the Verve came in, he let me go and pitch for it, even though I'd only been there a few months. And you know I was really lucky to have that belief in myself. So you definitely see that and you, you see that it works and you see that believing in people is, is all part of the, the business. So what does that mean when you said you had to pitch for the verb? What, what, was, what did you actually have to do? Well, it, 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 I remember exactly what happened was uh, Rob, he had this habit of, he'd drop a bomb on us. He'd kind of say, tell us half of what had happened and then walk off so that we had to chase him around the room to get the full story. <laughs> and he walked over to us and he went, do we like a band called Verve? And I was like, uh, yes. And so he just walked off with this grin on his face. You know, we did Oasis at Nebworth and he did the same thing. He said, would you fancy working at Oasis gig? And then just walked off. And so you'd have to run after him and, and tie him down. And he said, you know, this guy, Jazz Summers, he's a famous manager. He's the Verve's manager now, and, and he's asked us to pitch. They're looking for a publicist. And I said, look, let me do the pitch. I know I've not done anything before, but this is my band, man. This is the one. This is what I've waited for. You know, they were coming off the back of the Northern Soul, which is a classic album yeah. that hadn't been heard yet. They were the coolest band in the world. I'd been in the studio where they were recording Urban Hymns. 
it was in Metropolis Studios in London. I'd been in there with another band and they were walking around and they just looked like the best band in the world. They look, they all looked the same. They they had this vibe of mystique about them and they had that in the general world. And so I wrote like this five page document. And my whole thing was that, that they should play to the mystique. You know, the fact that nobody knew much about them at that point. Hmm. But they used to be this band that was all around Camden. He was Mad Richard. And I'm like, actually, pull back, you know, and and, and let's make the kind of mysticism and the mystique front and centre of the campaign so we only do cover stories. We make everything feel like an event. These songs are so good. But um, that was before I'd heard the music. Yeah. And I kept phoning the manager. I had no idea that he's one of the biggest ball breakers in the music business. <laughs> I didn't know who he was. I was just like some kid pestering him. And jazz is like an old school Peter Grant. They passed away and very fond of him too, because he gave me this opportunity. And I went to see him and he, uh, he kept me waiting in the office for two hours, then got me in the room, asked me if I like a logo. I said, yeah. He said, right, you're going to go and meet Richard Ashcroft and the band. Don't you dare ask to hear any music. <laughs> well, you're, you're too now. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. So we um, go down to Metropolis Studios, me and this other guy, Stu, and we go down and uh, they say, oh, yeah, they're waiting for you. They're playing pool in the pool room. Go into the pool room and there's Richard Ashcroft and Cy Jones playing pool. Richard's got like a Rennie hat on and, you know, a summer sun hat. And they, they just ignore us. They just carry on playing pool. They get to, I'm not lying, this is absolutely true. They get to potting the black and Richard's over the black. And he looks up at me from, with his sunglasses on, underneath his hat, he goes, a Reggie Peace man. <laughs> was cool and it was just like oh man that's too perfect and then we um had this uh conversation and me and richard are only like three or four months apart from the same area in england we found that we've been to loads of the same gigs we both lost a parent young we got on dead we're both supported the same football team that all went well and he goes right time to hear some tunes and i'm like oh shit <laughs> you know the scariest man on the on in, in london has told me not to hear any tunes no matter what. Yeah. But Richard Ashcroft saying to me, come and hear some tunes. And I'll never forget because he said, come downstairs. And he rolled enormous spliff. <laughs> One of the biggest I've ever seen. And was like, you know, we've all got to smoke this before we put the tunes on. And in Metropolis Studios, they had these incredible big speakers the size of doors. And you could put them on the bigs. And he said, Chris Potter, who's a producer, put them on the bigs. And... Uh, you know, get stoned said, right, now play a bit of Sweet Symphony. And that was the first time I heard it. And outside of the band and the A&R people, we were the first to hear it. Hmm. It's a bit sweet. Drugs don't work. Sonic, Lucky Man were the four that we played us that night whilst I was, you know, sativa'd out of my brain. And so <laughs> it was the greatest music I'd ever heard. And I walked away thinking that they were going to be the biggest band in the world. Now you have to understand that growing up, when I was like 17, I was following the Stone Roses around. And then when I... You know, in my early 20s, Oasis emerged and um, I saw a lot of them early on just as a music fan and, and yeah. that sort of thing. So the idea of a big band that explodes to me was almost normal. It was almost like, you know, this is just what happens. That, that's what happens. Yeah. You get a band, they get big, they play a big, they play in stadiums, play f festivals and arenas. And and I was young and, and, and everything feels like it's just natural and you're fearless. And so... That was my dream, really, is I wanted a band that had that swagger, that had the uniqueness, but that, that people could believe in. And um, Nick from The Verve, amazing guitar player, but, you know, he could, he, he, especially at that time, he could be quite isolated. But one day he gave me a tape of some of his mates and uh, it was really good. Some, some lads from Wigan and, and 
I ended up going to Rob, my partner, my mentor, and saying, I'd really like to go into management because I think that, you know, with publicity, we get paid a fee. You can only do so much. But when the records do well, we'd seen Urban Hymns sell 8 million albums and we were getting the same fee that we got for bands that were selling 800 albums. So it was, to me, I, I was like, ah, you know, if I'm going to be part of something that's going to be successful, I want to be part of it. Mm, yeah. So that's how... And I, I didn't feel close enough to the process. I like being around the artists. I like being exposed to the music and I like feeling like I'm actually contributing and not just another part of the wheel. So management seemed the natural thing to do. So we tried it with this band from Wigan, Witness, and we didn't do a great job. We were learning. They were too stony. They, they you know, like all bands had their issues and the label got sold halfway through Island Records. So it was, a, it was a bit of a chastening experience. And I kind of was starting to roll back thinking I'd better go back to PR because, you know, I was an award-winning publicist and here I was like trying to get out of my lane. And um, what happened was uh, before I was a publicist, I'd had a couple of jobs and one of them was working for the council in Leeds, which is the city that's closest to Kipax where the music are from. So um, I'd worked on events there. I'd worked on film festivals on bringing Sound City, the radio, to Leeds and um, all sorts of things, um, big concert events, uh, that sort of stuff. And so they were doing a kind of Battle of the Bands competition. And at the time, I, could, I say I, I was quite high profile with the stuff that I was doing. And they said to me, you know, come on, man, you owe us one. Come back and be the judge of this, this show, Bright Young Things. And I said, of course, man. I mean, I mean, they gave me a job straight out of university when, you know, I could have just head, headed to the dole. And I'm like, yeah, totally, I'll come back and do it. You know, and they were like, these are the other judges and none of them were really music industry people. <laughs> but And there was a Radio 1 DJ who was hosting it, but a really cheesy one, guy called <laughs> Bruno Brooks. And But I was like, you know, I'm doing this. I had no expectations. I was literally like, this is going to be awful. <laughs> it's going to be, you know, difficult. And I'm going to have to find positivity about all of these young people that are trying to make their way. And, you know, if I'm right, the music were either last on or second to last on. Last, last on, yeah. Because there were like these, this trail of bands that were so <laughs> average, you know. They were doing covers and it was, it was exactly what you'd expect. Everybody That's sounded like Oasis and The Verb. <laughs> Well, no, I, I knew that wasn't going to happen. And I, I knew, oh, no, I was wrong. Obviously, I was wrong. I, I, I expected that. That's all I expected. And you get a bit worn down by the end of it. And then this band come on, and it's four scruffy lads. <coughs> Just like, you know, and everyone else has made this real effort. You know, they've dressed up or they're in costume. You know what I mean? It's like, it's all sort of, this is a big night for them. Yeah, they're taking it serious, yeah. Yeah, no, you properly sort of, you know, and these four lads just amble on. You know, Rob, the singer, skinhead, um, you know, Stu looking awful like Stu did at that time. And, um, <laughs> you, you know, they, they were 16-year-old lads. They, 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 they were genuine. Like, oh, my God, what the fuck is this? Sorry, <laughs> what, what is this going to be like? And they started playing and, uh, you, you know, it was The Dance was the first song. Yeah, nice. I remember that absolutely crystal clearly because as soon as the beat started playing, I was like, whoa, hang on a minute. This is mental. And then Rob sort of opened it. And I I was absolutely dumbfounded. I'm like, 
Number one, how is that noise coming from that mouth? Right. I mean, he <laughs> yeah. was like this little scrawny skinhead and this incredible voice come out. And I was like, they're not trying to sound like anyone else. I've had a whole night of people that thought that the way to impress was to be the next this or the next that. And here's a band that's just making a racket of their own and all the way through. And the thing is that other thing I remember, they finished with um, the walls get small. They finished with an instrumental in a battle of the band. It made absolutely no sense. None of it. And it's just like, whoa, (laughs) it's a band. It's an actual band. And before we got into the judging, I ran down to their dressing room, literally as soon as they walked off stage and said, listen, we haven't talked about the judging yet, but I need to speak to you at the end of the night. And I think, am I right in saying Bruno had already kind of snuck in and done the same thing? Yeah, after, um, yeah, just before you. Uh, but yeah, I remember your face at the door when you came in. I remember I remember your face vividly. Yeah, the look on your face. It, it was, you, you, know, you just look, like you say, you just look blown away. And that was a bit like, oh, what's going on here? Well, I, I, honestly, you know, there are, there are very, I've been lucky in my career, really. I've been around some amazing records. And there's a, a few times when you are, because it's such a difficult sort of abstract business, really, you know, trying to work out what tones and vibrations are, are going to resonate with people's eardrums. You know, it's, it's, it's not as cut and dried as people make out, but there are times when you have certain amounts of certainty about something. Obviously, sitting in that room, listening to those four or five songs from Urban Hymns that went on to be classics, you know, it was so obvious, you know, yeah. no, it didn't take a genius. Everybody who did sat in that room would have gone, Oh shit, this is mm. going to be mega. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, the same thing, you, you know, with the stone roses as a fan, like sting them, just, I wrote a fanzine about them. And in the fanzine, I did a whole article about, you know, soon they're going to be everyone's band. They're not going to be our band anymore. They're not going to be this little secret. So there are times when you feel certainty and, Actually, me and Robert had a fallout because at the time, and this was leading to me moving away from management, Robert agreed to manage this artist called, uh, oh, what was she called, that model? Um, Caprice. Caprice. Yeah. You know, and I was really, really against this. Mm. And uh, he was annoyed with me for not supporting him. You know, the music was terrible and, and I, you know, and I just... So we weren't talking, actually, at the time. Me and him were being really weird with each other. Hmm. And I remember exactly where it was, but I, um, I was, went to, I think I was staying at the Queen's Hotel because I was, remember making the phone call outside Leeds City Station and phoning Rob and saying, right, I've found a band. I've got a band. I've got a band. And I'm telling you, this is what we needed. This is what we need. And he said to me, and this is why Rob was amazing, despite the fact that I'd really annoyed him and all the things I'd done badly and I'd done a lot of bad things, like neglectful things, he said, I've not heard you like this in a long time. Not like this. So we've got to go with it. Hmm. And uh, so he backed me. I played it to a friend, brought a friend down called Tom Friend. Yeah, yeah. Who now runs an amazing record shop in Bristol called Friendly Records. And he was one of the people in the music business whose taste I trusted the most and um, who is, again, just a really great guy. So I was happy to have him on the journey. And we came up the same week and had yeah. the band do a rehearsal. 
And the, I'll never forget because walked in and, and all the band's dads are quite imposing in a different way. Like each of them is quite in, unique and individual, but they've all got a presence, you know, that you, like, you, know, that you wouldn't want to mess around yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. And when we came up for that rehearsal, we walked in the room and the four of them are sitting there with their arms folded, like staring at us. And it was like, wow, wow. <laughs> but the boys just, you know, like what was amazing about the music and what I loved so much was that it was kind of unintentional, you know, like playing music was like drinking water to them at the time, you know, mm -hmm. they, you know, they just jam and, and, and they, and they play these things and I go, what was that? And I go, no, I don't know, you know, just did it there. I mean, it, and it'd been amazing, you, you know, so they, they were in a zone where they were all from the same place. They all knew each other. They all wanted to get out and uh, they had this magical chemistry, which of course to them seems like probably yeah that must, that must be what happened with every band because right. that's the band that they are, they get uh, they're getting yeah. they've got no idea that this is so special because how can you know it's only normal to you mm. you know unless you've been trying for years and you suddenly get in a band seven years in that's great but they were like sixteen you know they mm. they were they were playing their drums and things in in the, at school at, yeah. at school and we had to you know it, it was a massive massive responsibility at the time. Because they were kids, and you know, I was not only ten years or so older, but I felt a huge responsibility because I know how tricky and tough the music business is. And and I, you know, we we asked the band to finish school and you know get their get their examinations done and to rehearse. And and the thing that I remember clearly, and and I, you know, I repeat this process now is that we said to him, you're not quite ready yet to do the, you know, play the game. Yeah. So why don't you just sharpen your tools? And, I, and, and the thing that I really wanted was for that development period, whilst they were rehearsing, to be as untouched by other people's opinions as possible, because it was the time where they found their own personality and cemented it mm -hmm. and and we saw from later experience that you know once people got involved and start throwing their weight around it changed the whole yeah. dynamic of everything you know and that's mm -hmm. part of life and learning but that period i still say was incredibly crucial because the band locked in and came up with amazing music but but definitely sort of cemented that time so going into that first record we we had a band that had done a lot of stuff behind closed doors that would was necessary for them to to be a, a real band where a lot of other bands were were probably going a little bit early you know before they'd written two songs yep. sometimes you know and just doing gigs and i can imagine as a as a, as a manager and 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 being involved with a band like that having so much excitement and appreciation for them that might be pretty hard to do that's like a tough decision because it's like i know they're great and i could capitalize you know selfishly on on this band but i mean it, it must have taken some restraint to to put this on pause and then of course because i completely agree with you that they sound just like nobody else and yeah. the, you know and that's the first thing i thought when i heard them i was like this band sounds so good but they don't sound like any other band and that was so refreshing but to to have the insight to not let them get influenced and to tr in some ways protect them from that that must have been uh, such a hard thing to do do you know what it wasn't it wasn't because i was so convinced of what i had i, I was like you know how can you stop something like that from being heard 
you know, there's sometimes you, like I say, that certainty is like, you, you know, I always say as a manager, my biggest test is when I go into a room to play somebody some music and I press play, mm. how I feel yeah. in that moment is really revealing. Yeah. You know, it's because I can, I feel one sort of way when I'm at home listening to it and I can be like, oh, this is amazing. This is great song. This is a great song. But then yeah. you go in, you sit with some A&R guy or some president of some label and you say, I want you to hear this. Mm-hmm. And the moment that you cringe is <laughs> yeah. when you know you've got it wrong. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, when you sit back and you just feel bulletproof and you're just sort of going, I don't care what this person thinks. Because mm. I, I genuinely don't care. If they say yes, great. If they say no, well, They're wrong. look at all these other people I can speak to. It's the, 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 it's, it's really simple. So it wasn't difficult because it was the right thing on a human level mm. for everyone involved to, to finish school and, and for parents to feel like that we've been responsible and that we were yeah. going to try to be responsible with, with their children and for the band to not lose that part of their lives yeah. because they did lose a lot of their lives. To the band, mm-hmm. but that would have last last year of school and the innocent summers and that sort of thing. You wanted, I didn't want to take that from them and put them into this mixer. And mm-hmm. also, they weren't quite ready. We weren't. We weren't. Yeah, we weren't ready. And I think what I remember vividly is, and I think you probably agree that whilst we had this amazing chemistry and. So, so, you know, quite a lot of amazing music. I don't think we really, from your point of view, I don't, th- and from ours probably, not that we thought about it, but I don't think we had that one song. Do you know what I mean? Or that sort of couple of songs. And I remember when we sort of wrote Long Road, when we started playing it, I remember thinking he's going to really like this one. Do you know what I mean? I, I remember thinking this is going to be one that he's going to be like, ooh. And if I'm right in thinking, I think that was when the ball really started rolling, sort of when we when we came up with that song. It's but re- rewinding a tiny bit, like you've got to understand that that even though at the time this is four young lads from a small village in Yorkshire on the Battle of the Bands, to me that was like a, a I had to win, I had to get them as a, as one of us and, and Rob Partridge got involved as well. And, and me and Rob together virtually never lost a pitch, you know, because we, you know, we had different levels of passion, and, but with the music, it, I wanted to show them how serious I was. And I got another manager involved, a guy called Tony Perrin, who co-managed the band and co-manages the band still. And he came into the company when we found the music and he, he that was what got him to join. And he brought in a lot of, exact management experience which was a game changer because suddenly i was this john the baptist enthusiast with all this vision and and everybody loved me in a meeting that suddenly there was this guy who had been there seen it done it Mm. understood it really had things that i would never have had without him Mm. and you know so that whole thing was about showing these guys Mm. that that we were dead serious you know bringing in another manager you know like you know we, we were making it a proper office and they were the first thing. And, and, you know, it, it was amazing because after that time, you know, there was this year when they would get quite frustrated at times because they yeah, thought yeah. it was like, 
they don't really care about us. But I was paying for the rehearsal times. <laughs> no, we, we knew you cared, Matt. I mean, like you say, you you know, it's, I remember you and Rob came up and, you know, you, you both sat on, we went round to Rob Harvey's house, uh, to his parents' house, and you two sat on the floor. And I remember sort of seeing Rob Partridge sat on the floor uh, talking to our parents, you know, uh, like you say, sort of mostly alleviating whatever fears they had. Because let's be fair, you know, they had a lot of fears. And I remember, I don't know whether it was you or Rob, sent up loads of like books and stuff and information about, you know, music industry law and all sorts of stuff that, all sorts of little touches that made them feel more comfortable about about sort of what was happening. But I mean, that's the thing in it, really. I mean, it's not like they could have really stopped it because we were just, you know, we were so, yeah. we were so in that zone of this is what we are going to do. They could have, they could have, right? They could have, they could have persuaded. It would have only taken one family member to persuade one member of the band. Mm, well, it wasn't happening, you know. Yeah. Stu, that you know, yeah. could have said, "No, Stu, you're going to get a trade behind you." you yeah, yeah. And, and and that would have ended it, you know. So those were important meetings, and and we took them as seriously as anything, really. And and that was the thing is, is Rob got it, I got it, Tony got it. Yeah. Um, it was a really unified team. But there was one time where we went up, and they'd been recording in um, a studio with this guy Will Jackson, and um, I can't remember what you you were supposed to be recording, but I remember being there and somebody saying, oh, why don't we play that funky one from the other night? And they played it live, like, like Take the Long Road and Walk It. Oh, man. <laughs> and straight away I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> now, the, you know, it's yeah. like they've just rolled double six, you know, and, and we're off on the board. It was like, oh, wow. And I'm, if I'm right, that take formed the basis of, of the record the, the yeah, i think it did yeah the fierce panda one yeah just amazing energy and vibes the song and and you know if they made a movie of like the the music i could just see that in one of the scenes you know like yeah, i could yeah, just yeah. I, I, like, while you're explaining it i'm envisioning it like a movie like them just goofing off and you coming in and being like all right what are you guys doing oh let's play that funky one and then all of a sudden kicking in to take the long road <laughs> it was totally it totally was that and as soon as that first chorus kicked in yeah yeah with the big bass you were just like oh honestly it was literally like okay can't hold this back anymore yeah yeah that's it and that's how i needed to feel to go to the next level is that is that you know i was so cautious because i knew it was precious and the vision was that the younger because people like them you know have older brothers and sisters who were into the stone roses or into oasis Mm. And these kids didn't have a band like that. They're, and, and you know, I'm convinced kids now don't have a band. So yeah. I, that's my new thing now is I, I want another band because this is another moment like it was for the music. The music was the right place at the right time. And, you know, there was nothing like it. There was nothing like it. And I knew where the audience would be. Because mm. if I liked it, I knew who was going to like it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was obvious that it was the fan, those people, those, that, like, that crowd. And I, I just remember that as soon as we had that recording and Take the Long Road, we, me and Tony would sneak into a couple of meetings. You know, we'd have meetings about this and that, and we'd play that track, and it was so instant. I remember getting, I think, four lots of demo money from four different um, record companies. Right. They wanted to demo, so I went into, like, MCA gave us a few hundred, Ireland gave us a few hundred. So all these four different people, I think that might have been what we were doing at Soundworks. I think it was um, the major label um, all right. demoing. So we got money from all these people. There was interest everywhere. But once we played Take the Long Road, it became a pretty much a bidding war. You know, there was, um, you know, everybody wanted to sign them. But this bit I do regret. 
obviously, the, one of the first people that we played music to was Tony Wilson from Factory Records. And he had this amazing guy who worked with him, Warren Bramley, who was his like right hand at the time. And Tony Wilson, absolutely my hero. You know, intellectually my hero, musically worked, you know, worked with and discovered some of the greatest music ever. And, and I grew up in Manchester, going to the Hacienda, seeing him, seeing his face. He was like, you know, and Rob knew him and Rob had worked with him. And I had a little bit by this point, um, but we took the music to him and Warren and we, they came to a show in Leeds, that pub. It was yours as well, wasn't it? Yours as well, that's exactly yeah. what it was. Where Stu wore a t-shirt that said, I think I need another drink. <laughs> all fuzzy. Um, and uh, I mean, that was, I remember Wilson and, and, and Warren walking away from that going, fucking hell, that's amazing. And we built a relationship with Tony, but he didn't have a record label at the time. And uh, so he went out looking for funding and that meant that the word got out about the band and, mm. you know. That's fascinating. I didn't, I didn't know it all went like that. Oh, yeah, no. And so he, Emmanuel, who ended up signing our publishing, this amazing guy called Emmanuel de Buratel, who's this French music industry executive. He runs Because Now, which is an amazing label. There's Christine and the Queens, um, Manu Chow, things like that. He's, he's an absolute legend. But uh, at the time he was president of EMI Europe, Virgin EMI Europe. So Tony was talking to him about rebooting right. Factory for it. But unfortunately, Rob and Tony had been working together on something else and Tony hadn't paid him. <laughs> and Rob chose this as the time to take his revenge. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, oh. uh, you know, so we got lots of offers, but one of the offers was from Hutt. And Hutt, to be fair, was an amazing label. And at the time, it was literally the coolest label you you could have been on they, they they were breaking alternative bands everywhere and we were their publicists so we were like literally and it was really weird because dave boyd and paul who ran hot they were used to being my boss because mm -hmm. as a publicist like you're a whipping boy and they're paying you so you just get you know the bullied and all that sort of stuff sure and i had to have a meeting with them and said you know managing this band you can't phone me on a friday night and tell me that you need a press report in three hours about this, you know, it's the boots on the other foot and you've got to get used to that. And I never really vibed that well with those guys, but it, it had to be clear. They did have an amazing setup and the, the offer was great. And we split the offers, which is another big part of the story because then, you know, I keep thinking it's all coming back to me now. You think about it, then we had the track on, we sent it to Steve Lamack. Yeah. And Steve Lamack played the track you know, said this is one of the most exciting things of the year, played Take the Wrong Road and Walk It. And then the NME said they'd do a, a, what they called an on-piece at the time. You, in the NME, it was how you sort of put a rite of passage. But they did a big on-piece and called them the most exciting things since Oasis. Hmm. So next thing you know, it's not only the British companies that are phoning, it's every American company too. So, you, you know, we were getting flown over to America for meetings. They were flying over to come and meet the band. And, and we decided to do two different deals, one in the UK, one in America, you know, to try and keep two different things focused. Kind of possibly played against us but in some ways, but really worked for us in others because of how focused we managed to get the European team. And now mm. that broke us in Japan and, and France and Germany and places where we got to play big shows but the, the hut thing was really it was the right label at the right time we didn't do a massive deal because it wasn't about making money it was about putting the band in a place where 
they would be listened to. Yeah, yeah. And they would thrive. You, you know, they, they needed support to be able to talk. We wanted them to be able to play shows. We wanted them to be able to leave whatever work they were doing. Mm. I mean, they left us alone, didn't they, as well? That was a brilliant thing. I mean, Dave Boyd, we didn't spend a great deal of time with him. He wasn't one of these A&R people where he's all up in your business. Well, I don't know. You might have screened us from it, Tim. I don't know. But it wasn't one of these that was all up in your grill. He just left us alone. But certainly my experience of him was he was a really sort of warm sort of a really warm bloke, do you know what I mean? Seemed like a really nice guy, but, um, uh, you know, he was certainly, he felt right for us at the time, certainly out of the people we met as well. He was the right person, and, and he's a very good music man, David, and his A&R skills were great in that he had a real lightness of touch, but he had really good taste, and he really understood things. My issues with David were only ever as an executive. Like, you know, he could be a bit political, and I'm not a very political person. I, I'm quite straightforward. Want it all to be easy. Mm. This is what we're going to do. Let's not go behind each other's backs and just be straight up and get things done, which often isn't the way in, in the record business. People mm, yeah. like to make a big fuss out of it. But we, we wanted to be busy. You know, we got, we got a really good agent, a really great booking agent, Jeff, who has been with us all since yeah. the beginning. And, uh, you know, we, we had a great team of people around us because the band was great. Because mm. it, it was easy to put a team together. Tim, one question. I'm, I guess I'm confused. You said that you were you signed an American company and and Hut at the same time. So they what they committed well, yeah, to the second album. Cap- so Capital committed to the second album before the first album was actually even created. Uh, to, no, they they signed us the same way as they'd sign a normal band, but hmm. they they only had the so they they contributed money towards the making of the album. They you know we had to we had two companies. Ah, okay, okay. It. It, was, it was hard work, but it you know it did help set us up because. One of the things that, as a manager, I've always liked to do is encourage bands to run themselves as a business. So, you know, a lot of bands, part of the problem can be they'll get an advance in and nobody helps them with it, so they just Mm. spend it. They mm. just think that that's just free money. Mm-hmm. Oh, go! Well, you protected us from that. You won't let us spend. Oh, bloody hell! <laughs> um, but uh, certainly, I've I've talked about in my videos as well about the the team we had back when we were even you know down uh, Joe Feldman and people like that. Everyone who was sort of involved at every level. You know, Steve Phillips, there's so many different characters you can remember that just played such pivotal roles and just, like you say, all really good people. Uh, you know, no one fighting their own agenda, which is, I imagine, in in your in, in that line of work, one of the biggest problems with, you know, ladder climbers and that, just really sound people um, all pulling in the same direction. 100%, but, but, but that was, again, it's easy to put that team together when you've got a band like that. Mm, you know, yeah. you, you know I've, that's why I was saying before, you know, about that feeling and I've I had it with the Verve I had it when the Zootons played me Valerie um you know there's a couple of recent things you know there was a song that I worked on that that made the top 10 in America for a female singer with Flume and as soon as she sent me the demo I was like oh there you go mm-hmm. you know you know it, it, and those happen really rarely mm-hmm. but that, that gig the music gig and the incense as they were called at the bright young things you know I, I was coming up to watch them in, in shopping centers you know I didn't care they were the, the, they were going to be the best band in the yeah, world yeah when you <laughs> when they actually started to record and they were going to make their first album did you still stay how, how involved were you throughout that process were you there for the making of the albums did you ever see them in concert when they toured what level of involvement did you have well look man this was this was my band man. yeah I was there as much as I could be you know I was a, I I wanted to be in the band, you know, I wanted to be part of every <laughs> single moment. And 
it's really difficult for a manager around a record being made because subgroups form. They just do. It's, it's human nature. And sometimes the producer can be quite a political person. And certainly for the first two music albums, it was like that. And he would kind of box the band into their place where it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's us against management and record label. Yeah. You yeah. know, just, just, so, you know, oh, man. I, I had true, a true. relationship with the producers and the band during mm. the thing, because, you know, I lived every second of every one of them songs. Like, you know, I, you know, every single song in my brain had a thing, you know, like, Disco was a big and too high was a big thing for me. Where it's like it's got to explode, it's got to explode. It's got to have the sonic oh, yeah. dynamics that, that we've got. And you know, when you're on a different page to the producer, you, you know, it was there was some hard fought stuff at the time. Some mm. of which we were completely wrong about. Some of which we were completely right about. Mm. You know, and but the fact was everybody cared about every little move with this band. You know, everybody knew early on it. it this wasn't like a you've got to understand that, that there's nothing like a band like, you know, cause that's communal energy being given out. It's a gang. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It makes you want to be part of the gang. It makes everyone who's coming to the gigs want to be part of the gang. That's not the same with the solo artists. Mm -hmm. That's why with the streets, when we play live, we introduce, we make it feel like a band, you know, the, 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 the rest of the players all have a personality. They all have a name. They yeah. all get recognized. They all have a moment in the show so that people, you know, start to feel, you know, it's not just about one person. But when you have a band that has seemingly endless potential, everybody, everybody pulls in that direction. And it, they're rare. They're, they're, they're so rare. It seemed normal at the time because I was coming off the back of working Verve, Charlatans, Gomez, mm -hmm. Placebo, you know, all these bands. And it was just happening. So, you know, I didn't realize how rare it was and that, that, that everything is there, you know. It, it, and that, that first album was such an insane ride. Yeah. You know, like to think where we ended up from... Mm -hmm. You know, from working men's clubs and um, shopping centres <laughs> to literally headlining Brixton mm. and being on stage with, you know, Foo Fighters, Queens yeah. of Stone Age watching you uh, in Australia to go to Japan. I, I mean, you know, we had this trip to Japan. I've got to tell us this story because it's oh, I can't one wait. of my favorite ever. And... Um, we we we'd been and we'd done a trip and we'd done a bit of promotion, but we didn't know what any of it meant. You know, we would you know, and they were showing us these things, going, "Look, we you, you got number one on the charts in some radio station." We're like, "All right, cool." You know, we're resting. We're like, "Whatever." You know, and we, we've all been warned that the Japanese would be really nice to you. You know, and you'll never know if something bad's happened. So, you know, we were just we were loving life. We're in Japan. Nothing mm. else mattered. We're getting great food. You know, everything's great. You're yep. in Japan, man. And uh, so we, we we go to play on this stage in, called the Red Marquee. And uh, I went out to have a scan of it. Um, I can't even remember what I was wearing, wearing a Trojan Records T-shirt because uh, somebody asked me about it on the way into the stage. I went into the stage and there was a band called 100 Reasons on. I mean, 100 Reasons, they, there weren't even 100 people watching. <laughs> it was absolutely shocking. And I was like, oh, shit, this is terrible. Mm. You know, the band, they're going to play to nobody. It's going to yeah. be awful. Uh so I go back to the dressing room and I'm like, lads, lads, even if there's only 50 people there, you never know who one of those people might be, who they can tell. And the next time we come and the next time we come, but don't be thrown by the, the you know, that there's not going to be that many people. And everyone took it quite well. 
But then we had an argument, actually. This was a, actually, this is the best part of the story. They didn't want to play the people <laughs> in the set. And I was like, why are you, you talking about This is the one they've just taken to radio. So I go out to Japanese people stuff, and I'm going, oh, you know, they're thinking that they might not be feeling the people. That why? The people why not the people, though? We just didn't quite have it nailed, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that that well, I mean, now you're saying it, I don't remember that. But thinking about it, the only reason would have been, um, yeah, we might not have quite had it nailed or something. Okay. The structure, yeah. structure in that because I don't think the album wasn't out, was it, when we did the red marquee? No, 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 no. no. So okay. had we even had we even recorded it? Had we even recorded the people? Yeah, because it was on the radio. Of course it was, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. timelines are a bit... But anyway, the only reason we won't have been playing it would, would have been for some quirk, yeah, but yeah, carry on. Exactly that. It was exactly that. It was, it's, it's that, that, that we hadn't quite got it to the excitement okay. level of others. So I go out and tell to Chiharu, the Japanese marketing woman, and I've never seen... You know, this, she'd been so polite and so nice for the whole time. And her <laughs> face literally, like, all the blood drained out of it. She's like, no, you cannot. You go, you know, go in, and we have this argument, and it was quite a bad argument. I think I had to leave the room afterwards because I was like, you've wow. got to play it. It's really stupid. It's, we've got to play the song and uh, go. So I go. I think I, I stormed off, went to the stage, and there was just they'd had to open the sides of the marquee. There were so many people, mm. and it was filled from back to front, and there were people out all the sides. I, 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 I just was mind blown. I was like, "What?" Yeah. I, I remember they 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 pulled up to the marquee in the van, and I went running over in my Trojan T-shirt, going, "This is history! This is history! That's we're going to make history! This is history right now, right here! Go out! This is history! This is history!" And Rob had some terrible jean shorts on, you know, just <laughs> and they walked on stage, played the first note of the dance, and the whole tent went insane. Oh yeah. And we'd never heard, right, at that point, we weren't that big in the UK. We'd never heard anyone singing the words of a song back. Oh, God, yeah. And then it gets to the people. And we know that it's been on the radio, but we don't know how much it's been on the radio. Yeah. Mm. They play the, the opening riff, the da 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 and the place is fucking... Mm. <laughs> Mental. Insane. Yeah. Like, bodies flying everywhere. Mm. And... When it, when it gets to the, the hey Monday, when, you can hear the crowd. They're all singing every single word. It's like whoa! And that oh, was yeah. the first time that had happened to me in my career too. That's an and anthem so too. It, for all of us, that gig was mm. like yeah, whoa! Stu, Stu collapsed from oh, each joke at the end yeah. of the gig. Oh no! Do you remember this? And, you have to go on a drink. Really worried about him. Really worried about him. Stu, 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 Stu. You all right? Can we get you anything? He goes, eh, let me just have a burger. <laughs> <laughs> I think did he have to, I think he might have had to go on a drip at one point. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you, that gig certainly for me. I mean, it's something I could talk about for a long time, really. But I suppose the main thing is that the way you guys had sort of structured our rise, so to speak was like, I don't know, nothing was ever shocking. Do you know what I mean? Not to quote a Jane's Addiction song, but nothing ever felt sort of shocking. I mean, that reaction did, don't get me wrong. The, the, that amount of people there was just unbelievable. But there was a bit of us that were just like, well, it's us, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? We're good. So, <laughs> And that was the whole point, that sort of, that arrogance. That, well, not arrogance, but that sort of self-belief, that swagger that you carry into those moments in yeah. life. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think I think it's important. I mean, if you look back, there was that whole thing where we said to, Rob, for a joke, you know, we're supporting Oasis. And 
he said, tell them that they should be happy that we're supporting them. And Rob said it in an interview. And apparently Noel got really upset about it. I think it was Liam. I think it was Liam, wasn't it? <laughs> Liam called him a witch. And I'm like, do you know what? I think that was a good thing. It made people think that, if you know, we take ourselves seriously. Yeah. You know, you've got to, if you don't believe you're good enough to be on that place, and we, we did, you're right. We instilled that attitude into everyone. But yeah, you know, obviously having Tony and me having worked through a few big alternative bands, mm things there was a experienced structure there and and with honestly with the help of the um, hut as well that first album you know obviously we had more control of it because it was in the uk yeah and then which meant we worked the european and uk territories as more of a priority on that time you know mm. and they really got engaged and they all felt the same you, you know if you think if you're working for a record company right most of your day you're working rubbish stuff aren't you? Mm-hmm. you you know you're gonna have to work on paperwork you know steps reunion album and things like <laughs> that i mean you are you know caprice you know caprice exactly you yeah. know you, you know they were signed to virgin you know mm-hmm. so one minute somebody in international will be doing the caprice meet and greet with, with their they where they're tearing their hair out the next minute they've got four young lads who still have food fights who make <laughs> music and who are really charming and the 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 world's their oyster. Yeah. People want to be part of that energy. Mm-hmm. And when you're making amazing music, people denigrate people at record companies because, you know, it's easy to do, but they're just people, you know, they're yeah. just people like we are. And they've got different sort of passion, different main mm-hmm. reasons, but most of them are music fans. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> when something's good, they're yeah. more inspired. Certainly going back to sort of people and stuff and the people that are involved in record labels. And I think Japan was such an amazing experience for us on all kinds of level. It was like for the fun we had, which we can do other podcasts about all the stories from Japan and that because there are absolutely tons. But, um, you know, we walked around that building, EMI, as well, certainly I did, shaking everyone's hand, you know what I mean, that had anything to do with the record. And it was just so many people working so hard. And it, it almost felt even, it, it sort of felt more special in Japan, the whole thing, because it was almost like it was more focused, more um, condensed, and therefore more potent. And I think we even had, I don't know, more of an effect on sort of the kids' culture at that time. I don't know. I mean, maybe that was probably true here as well. I mean, certainly that I've learned since that I had no idea we had that impact on people's lives and um, but like you said earlier tim that the fact that we created that sort of gang men- mentality almost and we looked on stage like one of the crowd do you know what i mean um and it wasn't because they were trying to dress like us it was just because that's how everyone dressed at that time so we and people bought into that i think and you know it's certainly people that make these things work as much as you know the artists themselves well the way the way the way i got to work with the streets was um there was the guy who, who signed the streets, amazing A&R guy called Nick Worthington. And I, he wanted to sign the music to XL recordings. Yeah. I remember that meeting. Um, he was a brilliant bloke. Absolutely way up in our list. That was the Spice Girls meeting, wasn't it? Do you remember that when we had that argument about the Spice Girls with him? Oh my God. 
Do you not remember that? We, we were in that, we were, oh, mate, we were in that, uh, that restaurant, wherever it was, and we were, you know, talking. And someone mentioned something about the Spice Girls, and we started, and he, he turned around and went, Yeah, you know, Spice Girls are pretty good. And we started savaging him. Do you not remember that? It were all in good banter, but yeah, it was funny. He, 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 and he's good with all that. So he, I was in a meeting with him, and he said, So what, you know, the thing that the XL recordings is really, they're, they're really intelligent. They, they really think about, everything before they sign an artist. They, yeah. And uh, he said to me, he was in that Excel mode. He said, what's your vision to, you know, who, who are you going to get to? And obviously I said all the stuff about the brothers and sisters. I said, but, you know, at that point in the world, it was sort of like there was an emergence of a generation of people who, yeah, they smoked a lot of weed and they played a lot of PlayStation, but they <laughs> were bright kids. You know, mm. they were intelligent kids. It was a moment in their lives that, you know, in old days, people would have called teenage acting out something completely different. Yeah. Our acting out was just smoking weed and playing PlayStation. And, and uh, you know, but the, the, it was intelligent people. You know, these were people who would, a lot, a lot would go on to do great things and, mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff. But I knew there was a whole wave of these people who were sitting around playing PlayStation, smoking weed, listening to tunes, who would love to hear, a, a you know, a headband because they were... You know, the first album in particular, it was, a, it was head music. You know, they love to hear like these these kind of epic journeys. You know, it, it, it was perfect. And uh, he said to me, that's funny because I've got this kid from Birmingham who raps about exactly this stuff, the PlayStation 64s. Mm. And, and um, that meeting, I'd always, he'd always talked about it. And I kept trying to get a street. I'd never heard the streets. He just told me about him. I kept trying to get him to let me have the streets remix the music and be the first thing because i just the way he talked about him i was like this guy really believes in this he's good you know this is his thing mm. and uh then he a few months later he phoned me and said you know he's looking for a manager and it was all from that conversation mm. yeah, yeah, about, yeah yeah you know yeah. understanding where we all were and i could say that's why i would say right place right time yeah the world needed the music at that point yeah mm-hmm. You know, and it opened the doors for people like the Libertines and, and, and Franz Ferdinand because, you know, it, it kind of pulled people with with the choral as well. At that time, they were the two most exciting young bands in the country mm. and there was mutual respect and um, they, you could tell that there was, you know, it, it worked, you know, in a Beatles and Stones way. And it was really good, really good time. But yeah. it changed the, the airwaves and it opened doors. For the, there wouldn't have been Arctic Monkeys, Libertines, Franz Ferdinand to the extent that we got if it hadn't been for those two bands. Yeah, I got to tell you, I was in the States and uh, I, I had a similar experience to you, Tim, in the sense when I first heard Take the Long Road and Walk It, well, that was my first introduction to the music. And I knew right there, I was like, yeah, this is going to be one of my favorite bands for sure. I, I just assumed that they were just going to blow up in America too because they just had such a great sound. And uh, for a long time, my friend Mike and I, like, we felt so special that we were in this gang that nobody really knew about. And <laughs> we saw them in concert in Florida and they opened up for like a million different bands and, and the music was like one of the first bands. And meanwhile, they were the best in the whole <laughs> the whole whole you know lineup and i just remember sitting there going these people are about to hear this band for the first time they don't even know and so sure enough the dance comes on and mike and i are losing our 
minds and everyone else is just standing around like in amazement, like listening to it for the first time. And I was like, I just felt like I felt like I was in this club. Of course, I didn't know them, but I was like, yeah, this is my band. I know this (laughs) band and I love this band. But yeah, it's always been a a special band for me. But now that they're, uh, you know, years have gone by and uh, here we are in 2020 talking about a reunion show next year. Did you have any uh, any any role in in this uh, this resurgence, if you will? I don't know. Did I? I, can't, I, I? I don't know. I mean, yes, I think we all had a role <laughs> yeah. because yeah. there was a lot. There was a lot of stuff to work through. Mm-hmm. If you think, you know, to, without being glib, being dead honest, uh, you know, it's cropped up before. And look, man, we put our hearts and souls into this. I mean, it was this was a big, big, big part of our lives. Like all of us, it was everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and what you said about the, that show, you know, you used to feel like that every night. You know, yeah. you used to feel like every room we're going to walk in, we're going to blow people's heads off. And, and I used to get off on that. I used to get off on that so much. Like in the early days, we play these obscure gigs. I mean, I think it was most evident as that sort of opening for Coldplay, you know, because when you're opening for Incubus and stuff, the crowd are going to be used to a certain amount of racket. But when you're opening for Coldplay and you're playing our tunes and you, you know, you're thinking, oh, look at this, look at this little family here. This is going to be brilliant, brilliant watching their face. And, you know, you, you walk into people who have no idea who you are and you walk out and they're stood up and they're clapping. Do you know what I mean? And I used to love watching the, the, the really finer dynamics of people's body language as what we do effectively hit them in face. Do you know, I used to get off on that. I mean, that's, that's what I we were talking about before. It's that when you've hit on something where the vibrations are that strong, which is something like Take the Long Road, when you know that when that first chorus kicks in, people are going to be impossible to stand still. Mm. You know, they, they just, you can't not move, you know, a disco, you know, that gig in France with the blokes in that, you know, I mean, the, the thing is, because it, it, it was groovy as well, it was funky music, it, 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 you know, Phil played like no one else, you know, mm. Phil was, you know, Phil, Phil, Phil can be a total nightmare, but his drumming, mm-hmm. his intelligence is amazing, but his drumming, you, you know, just like totally unique and Stu, yeah. you know, Stu, Stu. Right, you would never think Stu Stu Coleman would be one of the best bass players in the world if you met him and chatted to him about cars. Yeah, you know, he's just the most well incredibly talented lad. You know, just it's it's his way of communicating is the bass, and and he's he's just phenomenal. Mm. And then he's playing the you know these guitar riffs that are like choruses. You know, it it it's it's it was nuts. Mm. So we made all of this. You know, so the reunion thing. It, you know, we try and play it off as easy as, oh, here's some money, lads. Do you want to do a gig? <laughs> you know, we try to put that on to, mm-hmm. to make everybody feel better about it. You know, you, you know, you don't have to do it. It's take it or leave it, you know. but Because you, you don't want to force people out of their comfort zones in, in, in that way. But you want to fish and you want, you're going, is, are we going to see anything here? Mm-hmm. And um, when people started to respond, you know, it, it there was a lot of conversations that have needed to be had over the years. Yeah. It was emotional. And it was like, you know, it was. when it, losing, it was like a death. It was, it was, yeah. you know, it was very, that, that, that sort of WhatsApp group popping up and, um, and, you know, sort of the question, the questions that you put out sort of hung around for like a week, I think, and no one even said anything. And then, you know, we all started 
sort of talking and then, you know, not going to get into it too much, but a few crucial things happened and then it was just like floodgates opened and we all started like pouring all our memories out into this WhatsApp group, do you know what I mean, that, that we hadn't discussed for, well, 12 years, probably or 10 years, God knows how, like, at least 10 years. And um, so, and I've talked about it as well in that our emergence initially was an incredibly organic thing and that's kind of how it feels this time as well. I mean, obviously it is only a reunion show in that sense, but it's still, it's, it's bigger than that. Is this? It's bigger than just reforming for a gig. You know what I mean? It's, it's like a celebration of something that were incredibly special to all of us that I don't think any of us necessarily thought we'd get to step into those shoes again for whatever reasons. Um, But yeah, it it very much feels like an organic thing this time as well, where the stars are aligning and, you know, Tim, Tim Burgess and the listening party and, how that started, you know, it, it, as I say, it all just feels so organic and so natural. But, but you know, it's a moment in the band's history. You know, this is, you know, whatever happens, this is, this is a moment in your legacy. Mm-hmm. It's like making an album. It's like putting out a single. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The next thing, you know, because you'll likely record it. It'll likely go on the, the streaming services, you know, ideally with video, you know, film it you, mm-hmm. you know it's a special moment the way that the last dance was a special moment yeah. the last dance is now part of the catalog of the mm-hmm. music you know yeah. it, it is you know when people look back in 20 30 years they'll go oh yeah and then there's the last dance one where they split up for a while for the first time and this was their farewell concert and mm-hmm. then it'd be like you know and then those years later they did this reunion concert yeah and here you know so oh, that was it, before albums six seven and eight yeah again you you know everyone's changed and everyone's in their own vibes and their own moments and and we all realize how you know fragile those things can be now you you Mm -hmm. know in the past when you're young you you can crash off work you can do this and that because you know you can make it up later you know Mm -hmm. if you took five years out we're smart enough to do at this point in life you know you know, Stu's got a kid and, you know, you can't go to yeah. Japan for a month and then Europe for six weeks. And I just don't see that. But, yeah. you know, what it does do, I hope, most of all, is remind everybody involved how yeah. absolutely unusual the chemistry is with the band. Mm. And whether that leads to more jamming, more gigs in a couple of years, or just an amazing gig next summer. Mm-hmm. Thank God they're all talking. Thank God that everybody realizes that that was such a precious moment yeah. for all of us, you know, and, and it's painful a divorce because that's what it all ultimately ended up feeling like, yeah. you know, because it dragged out for a bit. As painful as the divorce was, you can't deny the times that we had, you know, were things that, that for me, I never thought, never dreamt about what yeah. we got to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we, we used to think Japan. Yeah, we're we going to go to Tokyo. Mm. You know, it was literally like... We were treated like gods. You know, we were literally treated like gods over there. It was it was just such a surreal experience. And, you know, it was just like a playground, wasn't it, really? You know, we had all these people taking us to the coolest places. You know, everyone knew the coolest bars and the coolest coolest night spots. And you'd be meeting all these sort of models and all this mad stuff. It was just like, I don't know. It was just, it, it, it was so surreal that, but certainly some of my most um, well, treasured memories, you know what I mean? Nights out like in Osaka and when we all got smashed on sake and that hookup. Uh, 
<laughs> bar and all that shisha bar. It was just all, all too far too many to discuss. Do you know what I mean? Far too many memories, really. And um, you know, I think that certainly uh, providing you've enjoyed it, Tim. I think I'd like to get you on again to to talk about more stuff. So you know, you know, you just have to call me and, and say when. You know that, man. And you, you know you've got my support. So, yeah. so whenever you need me, just tell me. Well, Tim, I got to tell you, this has been fascinating for me. And I, as a huge fan of the music, I got to really... I got to personally thank you for finding them, for, for believing in them and, and, uh, and then putting your neck out for them and, and doing all someone that. Because it, would have done it. If it hadn't been me, someone else would have done it. Yeah. And that was the main thing, man. Like it was them and we had a great chemistry. It, mm-hmm. it was such a special thing. You know, it literally it was my first, you know, band that, that started really heading towards things. Yeah. And, uh, and we did, we were like, we were like a small family. Mm. We lived in each other's pockets and, 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 you know, traveled the world in a way that felt really normal. Yeah, like you say, it was just insane. That had 18-year-old kids at the other side of the world in Japan doing the stuff we were doing and just, you know, acting like it was normal. Um, you know, it, it, and it's been really, this This has been really interesting for me as well to to sort of hear, and I'd love to hear more even about the, you know, the final mechanics of early on and how, you know, the bidding war between label. I just think all that stuff's really interesting because mm-hmm. that's all the stuff that you protected us from. Do you know what I mean? You were never ringing us up going, oh, well, we've had bloody 20 phone calls today and this much, you know, we never heard any of that. So it's fascinating now sort of to, to be able to look back into it in, you know, in like a window and sort of see all that stuff myself, I think. And I think the other three lads will be really interested to listen to this as well, to be honest. And, and, and you know, whatever we might talk about in the future, I think it'd be fascinating. Yeah. And as we lead up to, uh, you know, to Temple Newsom, we'll, uh, we'd love to have you come back on and talk more about that. And as things... Whenever, whenever man, honestly, whenever. I mean, you know, we did, you know, it was, it was everything i mean that's the thing you've got to understand is that to me and tony you know this was this was the one you know it, you, you don't you just don't get to be the manager of a group that often yeah like mm-hmm. you know you get a band you know and they can you know they've dragged in that bass player dragged in that drummer yeah a real group like you know a group of people you know and people feel that you know fans audiences because of vibrations that they make together. And mm. I'm sorry to keep going and sound like a total hit. No, no, it's no man, not all. It's just kind of technical, you know, that whatever that noise and that feel that they create is attractive to human mm. beings. Mm-hmm. No, I get that. It comes from four different directions. I mean, it, all four of them, they infuse something that creates a recipe for just such a unique sound and and you know it's it's it, without one it's a different sound and all yeah. four of them oh, together just, they just certainly. make this amazing thing that, that the thing is the music could never have gone on without yeah. every form I and mean, you can't do the music with it with any other member you, you know this isn't even oasis you know although i think that first band was great that first oasis band, mm. you know, where it was you know straight up more rock and roll i mean they, they make amazing records i'm not digging at them but i'm just saying that you know the verve was a group stone roses was a group yeah yeah, Horror, yeah. a group mm-hmm. you know the music was a group you know exactly what it is and you know i work with solo artists now and i suppose always different streets but i can't lie i miss mm. groups you know just, just living together just being on the bus mm-hmm. yeah, yeah the luck yeah. that we had 
Well, exactly, and that, that's that's something we can talk about more. Certainly, the, all the banter and the stories and that, and even getting Rob on that would be hilarious. That um, we did that, like you, you know, of course, there were difficult times. It would be difficult times if you were living in a student house with four other people. You, you know, you, those same sort of personality traits would hit harder yeah. after after a while. And those things happen. That's part of traveling group. It's like a small yeah. office just yeah. rammed into a rolling bus. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, okay, yes, yeah, so this has been really fascinating for me and I want to personally thank Tim. I've got a lot to personally thank Tim for, to be fair. He probably won't let me do it, but, um, <laughs> you know, thank you to Tim for taking his time and coming on this podcast with us. Um, really, really appreciate that. But, you know, obviously a wider thank you for Tim for everything he's done for us and for me. Um, so, yeah, I really hope you've enjoyed listening to his thoughts. I know I have and uh, I know Pete has and um, it would be really interesting to get him on again and talk about more stuff, serious stuff and funny stuff. Uh, but, yeah, uh, thank you very much for listening, everyone.